0: This daily update about Amazon buys MGM, the streaming opportunity, and anti-monopoly versus antitrust, was published on Thursday, May 27th, 2021. Good morning. A few important announcements. First off, Monday is Memorial Day. There will be no daily update. Secondly, there are a number of changes happening behind the scenes with Mr. Tech over the weekend. I don't anticipate any issues, but if something strange happens, like an errant email, for example, that is why. If you encounter any issues, please feel free to email me. And an interlude for podcast listeners. Actually, there are big changes coming for you. This feed is going to stop having Chatechery content. Instead, you're going to need to add a new feed. You can't do it yet. It's going to happen sometime this weekend. When it does, I will put a new podcast in this feed telling you to go add the new one. It will be really easy. Just one quick. One I apologize it's going to happen, though. It should be the only time. And interlude. Third, next week is going to be an abbreviated posting week beyond the holiday, as I will be taking a personal day on Thursday. I guess I'm making it up to you today by going extra long. On to the update. Amazon buys MGM. From the Wall
1: Street Journal. Amazon.com Incorporated said it has agreed to acquire the Hollywood studio MGM in a deal that the e-commerce company is betting can jumpstart its prime video streaming platform and position it to compete with industry heavyweights including Netflix Incorporated and Walt Disney Co. The purchase, which was unveiled Wednesday morning, has an equity value of $6.5 billion, people familiar with the matter said. Including debt, the value of the deal is $8.45 billion, Amazon said. It would be the second largest acquisition in the company's history behind its $13.7 billion purchase of Whole Foods in 2017. In MGM, Amazon will get a library of more than four thousand films, including franchises such as James Bond and Rocky, and classics such as The Silence of the Lambs, Raging Bull, and Twelve Angry Men. The TV catalog includes critically acclaimed shows such
0: as The Handmaid's Tale, Fargo, and Vikings. I previewed this deal a couple of weeks ago in Distribution and Demand, where I contrasted Amazon's then rumored interest to AT&T's failed acquisition of Time Warner. To summarize the main points: first. AT&T's core business is in a zero-sum competition for customers with Verizon and T-Mobile. The point of its services, then, should be to differentiate its core business, which means making said services exclusive to its core business. In the case of Time Warner, that would have meant making a product like HBO only available to AT&T subscribers. However, making HBO exclusive to AT&T subscribers would significantly limit HBO's addressable market. This would be hugely value-destructive to Time Warner, particularly given the fact that content has very high fixed costs and effectively zero marginal costs, You want to show that content to as many people as many times as possible. This is why the deal, even before you get to things like culture and cash flow and debt, never made any sense, and why the Justice Department's lawsuit was so misguided or motivated. The dynamics of Amazon's core business, on the other hand, are very different. On one hand, yes, Amazon is in a zero-sum competition with everyone from Google Shopping to the Shopify ecosystem to Walmart to your local drugstore for your retail purchases – The zero-sum nature of that business, though, is compatible with Amazon Prime Video content being exclusive to Amazon Prime. You can shop at Walmart and watch James Bond without having to swap out a SIM card and sign a new contract. They're not only different markets, but both markets are also non-exclusive. You can shop wherever you want and stream whatever you want. Users are in control. That last part is key in why I called my earlier article Distribution and Demand. Controlling distribution, the key to economic power in the analog world, is... Because of the scarcity born of marginal cost of production, transportation, storage, etc., inherently rivalrous, what is used by one cannot be used by another. Controlling demand, the key to economic power in the digital world, is, because of the abundance born of zero marginal cost goods freely spread all over the world, inherently non-rivalrous, everyone has access to everything all of the time. This gets at the brilliance of the prime bundle. I explained in 2020 bundles, quote, It took me a long time to figure out what exactly Amazon was trying to accomplish with Amazon Prime Video. It's now 14-year-old streaming service. The most obvious explanation is that it was a way to acquire customers for Amazon Prime, the then two-day shipping service with which it was bundled. But then Amazon started offering Prime Video subscriptions on its own. Was it a Netflix competitor? Or is Prime Video a loss leader for Amazon channels, where Amazon made money selling other streaming services? Meanwhile, Amazon Prime kept adding on more and more disparate services, delivery, video, music, video games, photo storage, a clothing service, books, magazines. The Prime Benefits page has 28 different items listed. To some extent, the answer is all of the above. But it is notable that many customers only find out about many of these features after they are subscribers. Amazon may tell you about the book benefits when you buy an ebook, for example, Amazon Music when you set up an Echo, or remind you about Prime Video when you check out. The most valuable impact in these cases is giving you yet another reason to not churn. This makes sense when you remember that the business model for the Amazon Prime Bundle is less subscription revenue than it is increasing usage of Amazon.com. Back in 2015, Prime customers were estimated to spend an average of $1,500 a year on Amazon, compared to $625 for non-Prime customers. According to eMarketer earlier this year, 80% of Prime subscribers start their product search on Amazon and only 12% on Google, while that split is 50-50 for non-Prime subscribers. To that end, simply keeping Amazon Prime subscribers is the biggest possible win for Amazon broadly. Thus, the continuous drive to add more and more features. Sure, you may find 90% of them useless, along with everyone else. But it's anyone who has managed a feature-rich product knows that 10% that are considered useful vary considerably. End quote. To put it in terms of aggregation theory, if demand is what matters, then having ever more things that people might want is the default right strategy. The streaming opportunity. Back to the Wall Street Journal article.
1: The acquisition's thesis here is really very simple, Amazon Chief Executive Officer Jeff Bezos said on a call with shareholders later Wednesday. MGM has a vast, deep catalog of much-beloved intellectual property, and with the talented people at MGM and the talented people at Amazon Studios, we can reimagine and develop that IP for the 21st century.
0: For all the nice things that I just said about owning demand and bundling, The purchase price and Bezos' comments do point to Amazon's prime video ambitions being more than just a prime perk. I think there are a few other factors at play. First, my long-term view of streaming is intact. The old model is almost completely unbundled. For all you know, the big changes behind Chatechri are the launch of my own streaming service. Not really. And now we are starting on the road to rebundling. My view is that there will be three or four winners who will buy content from the rest of the losers, making up for the billions of dollars they wasted acquiring content— and the even larger amount they forwent by not selling the content they already had. Two of those winners seem clear, Netflix and Disney. The rest, though, are very much up in the air, and while Discovery now has the cachet of HBO, it also has the blessing and the curse of its existing businesses. The blessing of the cable TV business is that it throws off cash, and Discovery, with the addition of WarnerMedia's cable channels, should be able to squeeze the cable operators for an even bigger share of the shrinking pie. The curse is that the attractiveness of HBO Max will be proportional to the degree to which Discovery cannibalizes said cable business. Meanwhile, the blessing of owning studios is that Discovery has direct access to original content. The curse is the same one faced by AT&T originally, which is that making content exclusive, particularly to one's own subscale streaming service, is value destructive. Prime Video, meanwhile, by virtue of being part of the bundle, is already at scale. There are 147 million Prime subscribers in the U.S. and 200 million worldwide. There actually is a big three. The big difference is that no one, including Prime subscribers, thinks of Amazon as one of them. This is the first way that MGM can help. The studio has a ton of its own content, has spent the last several years under hedge fund control getting out of value-impairing distribution deals, and also does not have a cable business to manage. In other words, from Amazon's perspective, MGM was one of the two best assets in Hollywood, not only for what it owned, but also for what it didn't. The other is Sony, who I have already praised for seizing the real studio opportunity, which is, surprise, surprise, making and selling content. The second part of Bezos' comment about not simply buying IP but also developing it reminds me of one of the more interesting anecdotes in Amazon Unbound, Brad Stone's new book. Bezos continued
1: to reproach Amazon Studios head Roy Price. Quote, you and I are not aligned, end quote, he said. Quote, there must be a way to test these concepts. You are telling me that we're making $100 million decisions and we don't have time to evaluate whether they're good decisions? There must be a way for us to see what will work and what won't, so we don't have to make all these decisions in a vacuum. After more debate, Bezos boiled it down. Look, I know what it takes to make a great show. This should not be that hard. All of these iconic shows have basic things in common. And off the top of his head, displaying his characteristic ability to shift disciplines multiple times a day, then reduce complex issues down to their most essential essence, he started to reel off the ingredients of epic storytelling. Price helped riff on the list and wrote it all down dutifully. Afterward, Amazon Studios executives had to send Bezos regular updates on the projects and development that included spreadsheets describing how each show had each storytelling element. And if one element was missing, they had to explain why. But Price also told colleagues to keep the checklist from the outside world. Amazon shouldn't dictate to accomplished auteurs the ingredients of a good story. Good shows should break such rules, not conform to them.
0: In truth, though, there is a formula for reliably producing hits. Building franchises, a la Marvel and Star Wars and most of the rest of the Disney stable. I suspect this is the other driving force of this deal. Bezos is convinced that original content is the key to being one of the dominant streaming services. Witness the company's massive bet on Lord of the Rings. But you have to figure out how to do it in a cost-efficient way. Netflix is taking a multitude of bets approach, funding a massive amount of new content, and quickly killing off shows that don't work. Amazon failed to make that strategy work, so it is trying the Disney route, buying IP not just for what already exists, but for what can be spun off and extended. I'm a little bit more dubious about this part of the deal, to be honest. The truth is that no one has been as successful as Disney has been in building or acquiring sustainable franchises, and I think one of the secrets of Marvel is that so much of its IP is in written form, which means there's a lot more of it than there is for a studio that only has video assets. That, though, highlights why Amazon is such a fearsome competitor. If this doesn't work, they'll be on to the next thing soon enough. As Stone explained in an interview with Stratechery, Bezos' ultimate motivation is winning. Anti-Monopoly versus Antitrust, from Protocol.
1: The purchase attracted the ire of liberal groups that demand more enforcement of antitrust laws against tech. But Republican Senator Josh Hawley, who has criticized tech in response to conservative allegations that the company censor right-wing voices and content, also weighed in on the deal. He tweeted Wednesday that given Amazon's power in e-commerce shipping and cloud, the company shouldn't be permitted to buy anything else. He has proposed simply banning mergers by companies worth more than $100 million. Although there's a growing group of tech-skeptical Republicans who have backed calls for aggressive antitrust law and enforcement, legal changes would likely still require agreement from more traditional GOP lawmakers who think competition law should stay out of the way of American business and worry that new merger rules could have far-reaching effects beyond
0: tech. This excerpt really highlights the disconnect between big tech critics and actual antitrust law. There isn't anything illegal about this acquisition. Amazon isn't remotely dominant in streaming or retail, but that's neither here nor there, and doesn't own a studio. What is anti-competitive about this deal? In truth, what is actually happening is what I tried to explain in anti-monopoly versus antitrust, which I wrote last fall after the House Subcommittee on Antitrust released its report on big tech. Quote, that, though, is why it is a mistake to read the report as some sort of technocratic document. There are, to be sure, a lot of interesting facts that were dug up by the committee and some bad behavior, which may or may not be anti-competitive in the legal sense. Certainly, the companies would prefer to have a legalistic antitrust debate for good reason. It is exceptionally difficult to make the case that any of these companies are causing consumer harm which is the de facto standard for antitrust in the United States. Indeed, what makes Gould's contention that the competition is only a click away so infuriating is the fact it is true. What matters more is the context laid out by Letwin. There is a strain of political thought in America, independent of political party, although traditionally associated with Democrats, that is inherently allergic to concentrated power, monopoly in the populist sense, if not the legal one, Hatred and monopoly is one
1: of the oldest
0: American political habits, and like most profound traditions,
1: it consisted of an essentially permanent idea expressed differently at different times. Monopoly, as the word was used in America, meant at first a special legal privilege granted by the state. Later, it came more often to mean exclusive control that a few persons achieved by their own efforts. But it always meant some sort of unjustified
0: power, especially one that raised obstacles to equality of opportunity. In other words, this subcommittee report is simply a new expression of an old idea. The details matter less than the fact that it exists. End quote. That is exactly what is going on with the outrage about this acquisition. The deal may not be anti-competitive according to the law, but it is a massive company coming for a massive space, and for many that is inherently problematic. The daily update is intended for a single recipient, but occasional forwarding is totally fine. If you would like to order multiple subscriptions for your team with a group discount, please contact me directly. Thanks for being a subscriber, and have a great day.